Welcome to our latest podcast series here. I'm here with Tom Howell, segment lead of conventional powertrain for mobility technologies. In this podcast series, Reimagining Mobility, we talk about different types of technologies. And Tom, today we want to talk about powertrains for the commercial space. Sure. Maybe we'll start out with, I think you're the expert here, but I believe a lot of things in powertrain is pushed by or guided or led by or maybe incentivized by legislation. So talk about how is legislation in general shaping the type of powertrains we see maybe in the mobility space as a whole, but certainly in the commercial vehicle. And then maybe also as, a, as an add-on, what do you see next when it comes to legislation and what impact will that have on commercial vehicles? Okay, uh, there's a lot in that. Uh, so legislative, this is uh, a pretty busy time at the moment. Um, we've just had the phase two uh, legislation which has been finalized by the EPA. Um, that's caused a little bit of a challenge maybe for the OEMs now in that there is no longer a 50-state solution for NOx. Mm-hmm. Um, so within the CARB omnibus bill where they drove greenhouse gas and NOx down, uh, which was, what, a couple of years ago? Through, well, longer than that. Quite a few years ago now they released that. Uh, that was targeting the 20 milligrams for NOx and depending upon what the particular uh, uh, vehicle was something around 27% or so greenhouse gas reduction. EPA have just released this back in December, so their version is now 50 milligrams of NOx. So there's now uh, a bit of a debate as to exactly how are we going to um, have uh, technologies which are going to cope with both of these different solutions. Um, and it will make a difference to the cost associated with the after treatment. So mm. that, that is one interesting challenge. Um, in 2031, there's also an additional uh, legislative drive, which is going to be increasing the full useful life up to 800,000 miles for trucks, which is going to require an awful lot of development. What is it today right now? So at the moment, it's, what, 435,000. Wow. So it increments Quite an itself. increase. It yeah. is quite an increase, yeah. yeah. So yeah. There's, there's going to be a lot of development required, and that requires an awful lot of, uh, of proof of, uh, in order to... Uh, convince the regulators that you're able to successfully diagnose um, the uh, failure of the emission systems um, Mm -hmm. within the vehicle. Um, Looking uh, further in the future, we're also anticipating phase three coming out um, in the next two months, the first proposals for phase three. We don't really have any indications as yet as to what the regulators are going to be requesting with phase three. Um, then purely on the ZEV mandate uh, side as well, we have CARB, which uh, a couple of years ago, they, re- they released the Advanced Clean Trucks. And Advanced Clean Trucks increases the uh, proportion of zero emission vehicles which need to be sold by the OEMs. Uh, and that's, um, I think the most is 75% or so hmm. by 2035 with uh, within the class four range, um, class eight is 40%. Um, and they are proposing the advanced clean fleets. So advanced clean fleets is, it, to, to summarize it, they're trying to outlaw uh, internal combustion engine sales by 2040 mm. within California and the, the associated other uh, uh, states, so the 177 states. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot going on mm-hmm. in the legislative man, uh, world at the moment, which is going to push 
um, internal combustion engines into a, a, a tough place for development um, because of NOx and OBD, um, while also trying to reduce their life uh, lifetime because of the Z mandates. Right, right. I know we have our own group within within AVL that focuses on all these legislative type things, and, and I know they're super busy. But I want to go back to your point that you made of you have the EPA and you have CARB, yep. right? How do you deal with an OEM like that? I mean, is it just that if I'm in a non, let's say, CARB-following state, too bad, you're going to buy, you have to buy a more expensive product because that same product has to be able to be sold in, in California, for example, and as a result, I'm not making two versions, or are OEMs going to make two versions? What, what do you see with, with this? What's happening? I, I think this may well result in having two different versions. So mm. the 177 states are basically the West Coast states or uh, up in the northeast corner. Um, and then you also have Quebec as well, which mm. uh, tends to join in. The challenge I see here is that going to 20 milligrams NOx looks like it will drive a, uh, a the, the need for an e-heater within um, the after-treatment system. And in order to do that, there's a bit of a debate. It's possible that will require a 48-volt system. That's mm. quite an on-cost to the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. this, this may well provide a sufficient differentiator on cost to say, well, if I don't need to do that to achieve 50 milligrams, uh, which is more similar to the uh, European level of regulation, then I can use the European regulation and then have a modular system which incorporates the e-heater. Mm. Um, and that's going to be a difference in the cost of the vehicle. And as you know, uh, commercial vehicles are pretty cost sensitive. They're, they're expensive tools which are used. Um, you increase the cost, it makes it less competitive for sure. the fleet. Sure. With the increase by almost 100%, what you said, the useful life, right? From about yep. the 400,000 to now 800,000. What do you see the biggest needs for the OEMs? Are we talking more simulation is going to be needed, more real-world testing, mm -hmm. uh, more expensive components or redesigned components for a different usage profile now? What, what do you see there? Sure. Uh, well, it, it's... It's complicated. <laughs> it's the, uh, uh, that's the, why we're here to yeah. help. Oh, yes. That's, right. that's why you're here. It's the glib answer, but because on top of the increase in full useful life, you've also got a uh, introduction of a new technology. So um, with the 20 milligrams and the 50 milligrams NOx, we're going to go from a single stage SCR after treatment system to a two stage SCR after treatment system. So you've got new technology and you're doubling the life uh, at the same time. So we're going to need simulation to ensure that we've really got a good comprehension on the capability of mm -hmm. the uh, two-stage system. Um, and that will uh, also go into things like a, a hill or virtual test bed uh, so that we can really have a good understanding of how the degradation will be influenced and how the, the, um, the control strategies will, will manage that and pick it up under different operating conditions. Um, and then there's going to be an, a lot of testing. Um, and there, there's no way that you can get beyond testing an after-treatment system to get confidence in its capability over 800,000 miles. Mm. Uh, so then what is the most representative cycle? What is the best aging system? Um, there's still debates over some of the, the aging uh, approaches which have been 
proposed and used for a long time as to whether or not all of the regulators will actually accept those as, uh, as fully representative of an age system in, um, in the real world. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of testing coming yeah. up um, to be supplemented with simulation. But for this type of duration of testing, I think the other challenge is making sure that the failure modes which you're actually testing for are representative. Yeah. So there we can use uh, approaches like um, load matrix, where we're looking at uh, identifying the, uh, the failure mode, looking at the damage model, so that the testing is representative to get out to 800,000 miles, and you're not either missing the mark and not getting to 800,000 miles, or you're testing actually to I don't know, one point one and a half million miles, which is, while it's inter interesting information, it's not what you need for the legislation. Right. So, understanding what those test durations are is uh, something which we can help with when it comes to uh, using methods such as load matrix. Interesting. So we haven't talked about specifically any of the, let's say, battery electric vehicle or fuel cell vehicles, and a lot of things you've talked about is still diesel engines, right? Yep. Clearly, diesel engines are still in use today and sure. not going to go away in the next few years for sure. Tell me a little bit, what do you see the, the roadmap with diesel engines over the next 15, 20 years? Sure. Um, so we're already seeing the start of some new engine launches. Um, so the Traton uh, group have just released the, uh, their new 13 litre huh. uh, and uh, that, that's been stated to achieve 50% brake thermal efficiency. Um, there's some changes in there to the uh, air system, um, but it, it's uh, taking some of the trends which have been going on for a long time to the next step, so increased uh, improvement in uh, air system, higher peak cylinder pressure, reduced friction, uh, ch changing the EGR system a little bit as well, um, and that's being enabled by the after treatment system by going to that two-stage SCR, which enables us to have a higher engine out NOx. Um, so that's all maintaining the diesel, but then where do we go from there? What, what's the next uh, approach to reduce the greenhouse gas signature? And I, I think that's a, that is, becomes quite challenging. Mm -hmm. um, we're either looking at <coughs> renewable fuels, e-fuels, yeah. um, and there's two primary paths, let's say, on that. One is we maintain a compression ignition, so we're looking for really for drop-in fuels, of which there are a few in the diesel world without, it's, it's a calibration change, but otherwise there's nothing significant to the engine. Um, or we're changing to a spark ignited, um, and that opens the door to uh, other types of fuel. So ethanol obviously has an advantage in that the infrastructure is out there already um, in the light duty mm -hmm. world. Um, LNG and CNG have been uh, out for a while but haven't got great penetration. And then maybe further in the future, there's hydrogen. So okay. hydrogen ICE is, uh, is potentially a, an interesting uh, bridge fuel uh, and bridge approach in order to get to fuel cell further in the future when fuel cells are, are, are a commercially viable option. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about alternative fuels, it's to me similar to, to hydrogen, right? We've been talking about it for a long time, but it, it feels like hydrogen now finally is, seems at least from what we have seen, taking the next steps, right? Mm -hmm. in, in stationary power systems and maybe not passenger vehicle, but starting medium and certainly heavy duty, we see more, more movement now, not just in the U.S., but globally. What is it that's preventing alternative fuels to really get to that next step? Is, is, it the, is it the good old story about infrastructure again or the supply? Is it technology? Is it that mm -hmm. 
every single major OEM maybe thinks or believes in a different type of alternative fuels and we don't get the, let's say, economies of scale, so to speak. What, what do you see? I think it's infrastructure. infrastructure. I think that's the, the main driver. And as an example on this, if you look at the rollout of SCR systems in 2007, 2006 was preceded, uh, pre preceded 2007, which was the launch of ultra-low sulfur diesel. And without ultra-low sulfur diesel, you wouldn't have SCR because of the poisoning from the sulfur, um, so the SCR would die. Um, uh, without having the infrastructure, you can't implement a change in the fuel. And that is going to be the big debate because we can't invest in every single potential infrastructure. Mm. We, we have to try and choose something which is going to go forward. And um, I see a potential future competition between hydrogen and electrification. Um, and I think there's going to be different use cases for those two. Hydrogen, I think, is uh, because it's got great energy density, uh, it, it's well suited for long haul and really energy intensive applications. Whereas electric vehicles, the challenges with charge time, the challenges with uh, battery uh, mass, uh, they're going to limit them to uh, the, the local delivery, the regional. Um, and it, I, I'm struggling to see a path at the moment to them getting out into the, uh, the long haul environment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, technology moves on all the time. And so it's going to be a race really between hydrogen fuel cell in the long term and battery electric and battery development in, mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the long term. Infrastructure, let's, let's quickly stay on that one. So mm. let's say for a moment on all the major rest areas along major highways where the, the majority of heavy duty trucks are traveling and would need to either refuel hydrogen or recharge. Let's say we have plenty hydrogen infrastructure available, refueling stations available, and we have plenty fast charging available that even probably for a truck is more than what we're talking for a mm -hmm. passenger vehicle whatever five minutes ten minutes is going to be way more maybe for a, for a heavy-duty truck but maybe still acceptable what do you see is still maybe more the the trajectory of the technology right now let's not assume for a moment um, solid-state batteries you know better charge, better uh, energy density, all mm -hmm. these things, safer maybe as well. But between hydrogen and batteries, assuming there is no infrastructure problem, what do you see? I would bet on uh, hydrogen for long haul and anything which can be a return to depot or is uh, regional or shorter uh, would be battery electric. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not seeing a path at the moment for battery electric vehicles to get to the level of energy density required to support a uh, long haul application. Mm -hmm. If I take the E-Cascadia or the, the there's, a, there's quite a few uh, class eights. Available now, yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. I commend the OEMs, they've done a phenomenal job. They've produced some fantastic vehicles um, and they're pushing the technology. So the E-Cascadia, I think it's got a, somewhere around a 440 kilowatt hour battery and it's got about 220 mile range. Uh, it takes 90 minutes to charge on a DC fast charger. Mm -hmm. So if you look at this from an hour of service standpoint, which is again, TCO, yep. uh, total cost of ownership, yep. you've gotten lost an hour every single time, hour of uptime every single time you charge, and you need to charge twice a day. So that's two hours per day that you've lost. Now as a service, you've got 30 minute break, which is mandated every single eight hours. 
So the target which you've got to achieve, if we're assuming that hours of service may, is maintained, and I think it's a fairly sensible uh, approach from a driver uh, perspective, is that you need to charge that truck within 30 minutes and it's got to do eight hours of driving. So that is about two and a half times the size of the battery, which you need to achieve that range, and you need to charge it in a third of the time. Mm -hmm. That's a two megawatt charger. So when you start going down this path, you're looking at a significant, uh, kind of getting onto order of magnitude changes within the battery technology within a class eight BEV. Mm -hmm. And that takes a long time to develop. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see that technology path um, revealed at the moment. And I think for it to be viable by 2040, which is what carbon mandating with the yep. advanced clean fleets, I think we at least need to see what the technology is so that we can then start developing it in order to be totally viable by 10 years ahead of that. Sure. Because otherwise you're going to be throwing away a vehicle yeah, which yeah. you haven't fully paid off. Right. So I, I struggle with the outlawing of uh, an ICE uh, within this timescale. Mm. If we talk about, in the industry, we always talk about there's space and there's an application for different types of propulsion systems, right? So hydrogen, diesel, battery electric, we start seeing, or we have seen it in the passenger vehicle and in other spaces as well, right? Even agriculture now, they say diesel's going to be around, but there's going to be electrified, maybe even some hydrogen. Do you see there space for a fourth one, which is, let's say, biofuels or alternative fuels as well, besides hydrogen, the traditional diesel, and battery electric? Or is that just going to be, in your mind, that's just too much? We barely have a chance right now to build out fast enough the electric or hydrogen infrastructure. Now we're adding a, a fourth one, maybe a fifth one, or is this not necessarily a, a concern of yours? I think there is room, but you need to look very carefully at how it gets implemented. Um, so I think I mentioned before around ethanol being something which mm -hmm. you know, we, should, we should look at this seriously. E85 is widely available, and there is a large production capability, uh, capacity within the US right. um, for, for ethanol. Ethanol is already blended into uh, standard gasoline. Regular, yeah. so, why don't we start looking at that as actually a, a fuel? Maybe it is limited in some of the geographic areas, but certainly within agriculture, it could make an awful lot of sense. Mm. Um, certainly within the regional side. I think anything when it comes to the um, compression ignition, I, I think the best approach, uh, this is my opinion only, but a, a viable approach would be um, blending in some level of renewable fuels in a similar way as has happened with ethanol. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is capacity within the US to provide quite a lot of renewable fuels, somewhere around a third of the uh, diesel which is um, consumed per year. If you can get that into a drop-in environment, a drop-in type of fuel, then that could easily be implemented, I say easily, not being the person who has to do it, but <laughs> quote unquote, <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> it, it appears to be a more viable option to have uh, blending into the, uh, the, the diesel feedstock mm. and reduce your greenhouse gas signature overall. It, it's not going to go to zero. I, I get that. But 
don't we want to start doing something sooner rather than later? Let's, mm. let's, let's not let perfect get in the way of good. Mm -hmm. Two more questions. One, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. With all the stuff you've just talked about, you know, we go from 400,000 miles to 800,000 miles. We've got to add more technologies because we've got to meet certain emission standards, greenhouse gas standards, just government-regulated things, right? With hydrogen, battery electric, in my mind, I see more costly vehicles. Mm -hmm. So that's when I want to put you on the spot. Does that mean now that maybe rail suddenly becomes a much bigger player again in moving goods? Hmm. I, great question. Uh, as a European, uh, someone of European origin, oh, talking to someone of European yeah, origin, yeah. we understand the feasibility and the uh, the great power of rail. I think yeah. maybe than uh, than over here. Um, I, I would love to see rail uh, from a, uh, the perspective of efficiency in moving freight. Um, I think I think it's a, a great method. Uh, and the challenges are again infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There are several bottlenecks within the rail network which result in um, goods taking longer than they should, which is why so much of the uh, freight is actually transported around in the US on truck. Major highways, yeah, Major yeah. Highways. much better, much yeah. better infrastructure. Sure, and it, it doesn't have to be that way if there were actually a, a, a sufficient infrastructure in place. Yeah. I, the cynic in me says I don't see that changing anytime soon in the US unfortunately um, and so I think we're going to continue to work on uh, the highway on the road, um, yeah. unfortunately um, it's but that's okay we, we can we can make improvements on yeah. what we do on the highway yeah. I mean I'm not an expert in it right but I see those rails sometimes I get stopped in the morning to work by a rail and they're just one cart after another it's like wow what would happen if, again, cost becomes prohibitive or less prohibitive to go on rail? How much busier would some of these rail crossings be? And then, then the other thing, when you sometimes, you know, you sit at the beach and you look out and you see all those freighters, you think, are we going to have more goods up and down the coast maybe with freighters? I don't know. I mean, we have challenges in the ports and all this. I'm just wondering for myself right with with increase in cost and as you mentioned before correctly everything is total cost of ownership are some of these previously maybe used more used in the past means of moving goods ships uh trains are they suddenly becoming more of a focal point again right i don't know just Sure. Uh, I, I'm stepping well out of my area of expertise here, but I'll, <laughs> that's I'll, I'll talk. I put you on the spot. That's fine. I'll talk a little bit around some of the things which I have picked up, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure that there'll be commentary to correct me where I'm that's right. I get it wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, we have a large amount of freight coming into this country on the west yeah. coast. Um, with some of the challenges with the West Coast ports, whether or not that be um, just sheer volume, efficiency, uh, cost, uh, there has been an increase in the amount of freight going through the Panama Canal and coming up into the East Coast ports. Mm. Um, so th that's the kind of thing which was enabled and driven by the supply chain issues, the uh, issues with how much um, freight could be managed by those West Coast right. ports. Right. Um, 
that's a big change when you're looking at the logistics. Sure. Going from West Coast to East Coast, there's a lot of there's a few thousand miles in between there. It's cost how, associated with it. It's cost uh, associated with it. And then even though even on, on ships, right, we work on fuel cell solutions yep. and on, on trains we work on hybrid or not hybrid, but fuel cell solutions as well or pure BEF. So it's good for the mobility space, but again, sure. it's a constant, probably a constant trade-off. I think that's where you're getting that. It is, and it also, what's the cost of time? Sure. So yeah. are you willing to wait that extra week, two weeks in order to have your goods, or do you need to make sure that it is just in time and going to be uh, keeping your inventory mm -hmm. low? So mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a challenging question to answer, and it's much bigger than just the powertrain selection. It comes down to... Uh, what's the business model for the organizations sure. which are actually doing the freight yeah. movement um, and the cust their customers. Right, good. Last questions. What, do you, what are you most excited about in the powertrain space or propulsion space for heavy-duty trucks or commercial vehicles over the next five to ten years? What, what are you most looking forward to it? I think it's going to be really exciting watching this, uh, I'm going to call it a battle because why not battle between um, I, I think it'll be hydrogen and electrification uh -huh. and BEV and how battery development comes on uh, versus hydrogen gets implemented um, and while that battle is going on there's going to be the continuing work of delivering goods using diesel um, or an ICE it, it's going to be it's a good time to be an engineer because there's so much <laughs> options and there's a lot of interesting technology to be developed. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Tom, for joining. Appreciate and thanks it. for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Mobility Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.